This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week on the programme, more public money for more journalism. The first spending from the $55 million Public Interest Journalism Fund has been unveiled against a backdrop of concern from opposition politicians and some journalists about putting the media on the government's payroll. We talked to New Zealand On Air's head of journalism about that and the journalism the new money will be buying. Also, controversy over public money and the mongrel mob. Why did you give $200 of taxpayer money to the mongrel mob? I'm tired of those stupid types of questions. He did give money to the mongrel mob. Do you reckon? Also on the programme, the good, the bad and the gruesome of sport. One of the kicks that he checked is what broke your leg. There was no check! But first, prices are going up, but joblessness is down, but inflation could be on the up. The economy is getting complicated. Those who understand economics aren't sure what's coming next. So what should those of us who don't understand it listen to? This is your last regular with us after how many episodes did we think we worked it out today? <laughs> well, I, I consulted my diary. 9.45 on the morning of Friday, July the 12th, 2002, Linda Clark and I had our first conversation, your predecessor. That's Rod Oram, the business commentator on RNZ's 9 to noon each week, talking to Catherine Ryan last Tuesday on the last of his regular appearances, which go back even further than the current host of 9 to noon. And in all that time of talking to us about the economy, what did Rod Oram want the listeners to know? Business and economics are far too important to ignore or to be scared of, yet thankfully they are in essence simple to understand and respond to, but far too often people who derive their success and power from business and economics make them sound very complex and hard to understand because quite simply they don't want you to know what's going on to their benefit which is not necessarily beneficial to you. And with that in mind, last Wednesday was the day the Reserve Bank published its Monetary Policy Review. Looking ahead to it last weekend, TBNZ's Q&A show talked to economist Cameron Bagri. And if you look at where we are in regard to inflationary pressure, if you look at where we are in regard to your maximum sustainable employment, the Reserve Bank, I think, is going to be basically ticking the box and saying we need to move. Now, whether we are at maximum sustainable employment or not affects businesses and job opportunities and wages for many, many people. As Hayden Donnell now reports, people in business wanted to influence what decision makers reckon about that via the media. The Herald kicked off last week with a front page devoted to Sid and Chan Sarawat's decision to close their three upmarket Auckland restaurants for two weeks over staffing shortages. The paper elevated the Sarawat situation to the highest office in the land, recording a response from Jacinda Ardern under the headline PM on the plight of the French cafe. I am aware of those issues uh, and we as a cabinet have discussed what can we, what can we do in the face of what are in very, uh, a very large number of areas and very genuine need, at the same time continuing to encourage sectors to draw on and train New Zealand's domestic workforce. This was the start of a media blitz for hospitality industry bosses. Over the next few days, a succession of restaurant and cafe owners were filmed ceremoniously switching off their lights as part of the Restaurant Association's The Reset campaign. It aimed to put pressure on the government to allow more migrant hospitality workers into the country to fill gaps appearing in the rosters of many bars and eateries. For a while, its talking points went pretty much unchallenged. The project's coverage saw presenter Jeremy Corbett quizzing a bar owner who brushed off a question about whether restaurant owners could perhaps attract staff with better pay offers like this. One of the problems, uh, Evan, that we've heard about is that Kiwis don't want to work in your establishments for some of those jobs. Is it possible low wages are keeping them away? Could the hospitality industry perhaps pay more? 
No, absolutely not. That's an absolute misconception and a, and a false lie that's been repeated for, for years and years and years. The project's host accepted that and moved on. On RNZ's Checkpoint, the general manager of Morningside's Crave Cafe listed a series of potential solutions to his staffing shortage. Options are we could, we could close the kitchen for a day, um, a week. We could make our menu much eat much smaller and that one chef could do it for those for a few, certain few days. We don't know how to just try and find someone, you know. Just pay lots more money, um, an, an unsustainable amount of money is a, is, is a point. These initial reports are a lesson in how a well-run PR campaign can sometimes help you sneak in some early less than critical coverage for your cause. Because as it turns out, many hospitality workers don't see their pay levels as quite such an insurmountable or insignificant factor in their industry's staffing shortage, and this week their voices have started to cut through. The morning after the project ran its story, the founder of hospitality advocacy organisation Raise the Bar, Chloe Ann King, had this to say in an interview with RNZ's First Up. Our jobs are highly skilled, and to be offered such low pay, it's, it's an absolute insult. So if employers want to see us coming back into the industry, they're going to have to offer higher wages. They're going to have to offer us working conditions that don't leave us burnt out and feeling like we are subhuman. King's message echoed that of Charlotte Mudu Lanning, a former hospitality worker who now writes at the spin-off. She told RNZ Podcast the detail that hospitality employers should be concentrating on fixing their exploitative industry rather than patching over their problems with migrants. I don't doubt that there's a worker shortage. The blame for that lies on the industry as a whole and for the people who are kind of decision makers and who speak out in that industry. I don't think that they've done enough to um, encourage people into the industry. If there were not enough jobs and there were all these hospitality workers looking for work, they would have to upskill to try and look good enough for an employer to employ them. But when it comes the other way around, there's not that same expectation to draw us in. On RNZ's 9 to Noon, political commentator Stephen Mills also criticised hospitality bosses for getting their hackles up as soon as they face a market where they have to compete for workers, as opposed to one that works the other way around. We've had this farcical situation where hospital businesses have been saying, oh, we can't get people to work in restaurants and we're going to have to pay too much money to get New Zealanders, so we're going to shut down and turn our lights off and all this stuff. Um, we've talked for ages about how we need a high-wage economy, We've talked for ages about our low-wage problem. The moment there's a labour shortage and working people are able to actually demand more, we get demands to bring in more low-income labour. It likely wasn't intentional, but Employers and Manufacturers Association Head of Strategy Alan MacDonald fueled that chorus of criticism in an interview with Newsroom's Jonathan Milne. He told Milne the country's current unemployment rate of 4.5% is too low and needs to be closer to 5% to help stave off wage inflation and help businesses retain staff. Some commentators pointed out that the EMA now raising concerns about high employment recently opposed Labour's minimum wage rise in part on the basis that it would cost jobs. Labour-aligned political commentator Neil Jones called McDonald's argument truly monstrous. Economist Shamabil Yakub is also unimpressed. Look, we know the hospitality industry has been hit hard, but at the same time, we can't just go, we're going to exploit workers from overseas to be able to sustain our businesses. The hospitality industry has long had issues um, in terms of unstable work, low pay, uh, low certainty. Those are things that can be improved. In many other countries, working in hospitality is seen as a secure and good job. In New Zealand, that is not the case. The work is hard, the work is low paid, and the work is insecure. 
if you fix those things, you will find more workers. I think we need to find balance that for a long time, New Zealand businesses have paid far less than other places. It is about finding that balance, and I think that balance has not been present in a lot of the media coverage. Has the media been critical enough of these employers' perspectives and put different solutions to them as you're doing now? Well, I don't think we've gone far enough because we need to find those other stories about businesses that, in fact, are recruiting and they are paying better wages and they are filling those vacancies. Has the media, in your opinion, been good enough at putting some of these things, like the lights out protests from restaurants, in economic context? Look, the coverage hasn't had context. And I would like to see far greater exploration of the fact that there are many businesses and many industries in New Zealand where sales have gone up, profits have gone up, and the same businesses are arguing that we need to have access to cheap labour because we want to make more money. They need to make investments in training and helping people into these positions. Some disclaimers apply here. Employers have an important perspective and broadcasting it doesn't brainwash audiences into believing every word. In the end, workers' voices did start to cut through and the employers' campaign started to seem a lot less sympathetic. But it might have been nice to hear earlier on from those who may not have been so keen to switch off the lights over a market offering them higher wages and a better shot at getting a job. This roiling two-week-long media saga comes with a small warning. Even if a story comes packaged with glossy PR and on-call media talent, it's worth checking for other perspectives before going to air or hitting print. Hayden Donnell there on who's influencing the reporting of our current economic upheavals. Last February, the Minister for Broadcasting and Media, Chris Farfoy, chose the premises of one of the country's very oldest newspapers, the Otago Daily Times, to announce that $55 million would be spent over the next three years to sustain local news and journalism. During the uncertainty of the COVID lockdown the previous year, he'd pledged to support at-risk journalism in the interests of democracy, and the Minister actually has another $20 million up his sleeve if Cabinet thinks the media need that too. And this makes the Public Interest Journalism Fund the biggest single public investment in journalism for decades. Media companies big and small, local and national, public and private alike, can all apply to it, even those who've never had public money before. Now, the government insisted that this fund would be dispensed at arm's length from it by the government's broadcasting funding agency, New Zealand On Air, though its board members are, of course, appointed by the Minister of Broadcasting. And opposition politicians have complained long and loud that the media will be reluctant to bite the government hand-feeding them. Just last Thursday, National Party leader Judith Collins said this in an interview on Facebook. You know, you have to wonder, does that buy compliance or what? Um, and if it doesn't buy compliance, then why is part of that? Are there conditions in that that says that you've got to be seen to be promoting the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi? What the hell has this got to do with it? You're talking about free media, free speech, and you've got a government going around telling people, well, well, we'll help you out in the media because we think it's good to have a media, but you have to say what we think you should say. I just don't, I don't buy it. And I don't think media should be buying it either, but quite often, obviously, some have completely drunk the Kool-Aid. Now that reference to the treaty is all about New Zealand on-air guidelines for the fund which were issued in April, which said it must actively promote the principles of partnership, participation and active protection under Te Tiriti o Waitangi. The guidelines also said New Zealand on-air intends to work with the Māori and iwi journalism sector to ensure parity of need and interests within the sector. 
Now, some journalists saw fishhooks in all of this too, writing about what he called the danger of putting the media on the government's payroll. Graham Adams pointed out that the role of the treaty in our constitutional and political arrangements is actually a bit of a hot issue at the moment, but any journalist airing dissenting views of people on the treaty as a partnership would be out of luck. The Public Interest Journalism Fund has been set up to spend the money in three ways. On specific media content to be delivered to a deadline, on employing reporters in newsrooms around the country, and on industry development, particularly cadetships and training. And on Thursday, New Zealand On Air announced what it's spending the first $10 million of the fund on. Around 40% of this first funding round has gone to projects benefiting Māori journalism, and the biggest single project is a training programme called Tereto, which will train and hire 25 journalists and cadets. Among 33 other funded projects are training for iwi radio staff around the country, a boost in funding for Auckland's urban Māori radio station Radio Wātea to deliver programmes and news to the 20 iwi stations around the country. Non-Māori specific projects include a series called How Good Is Our Public Service? It's by the online news service Business Desk and it may be one the government may not actually be too thrilled about. Likewise, a follow-up to the Inside Child Poverty documentary, which screened 10 years ago, and the funding at that time created a political interference controversy when a national-led government was in charge. Programs and investigations on what will happen when the Alpine fault ruptures, on type 2 diabetes and on how to fight public health misinformation have also been funded for a range of media platforms, many of them not run by the big names in local media. Raywin Rash is New Zealand on air's recently appointed Head of Journalism. Kia ora, Raywin, thank you very much for joining us on the programme. Kia ora, nice to be here. Uh, when the fund was launched by the minister, he specifically referred to things like at-risk public interest journalism and underserved audiences. But I do note from some of the things that have been funded, some of it's not altogether new. For example, uh, the Detail podcast, the co-production of RNZ and Newsroom, things like, for example, The South Tonight, um, which is uh, local television for the Dunedin and Otago region, that already exists. So is some of this also kind of rebadging of existing projects? Because those things were already funded by New Zealand On Air, it makes sense for them to actually come into the, the journalism fund. And in some cases, the you know, if they had um, funding that had been established um, under the um, existing media fund, uh, some of that's come across as well to this fund. So it's basically tidying things up and, and putting them all in context with all the other journalism projects. But having said that, they still had to compete against other projects. And they all um, met the requirements of the Public Interest Journalism Fund. There's Watea News, Pakiwaha, which is a morning programme. Uh, I mean, that currently exists. That's being funded, I think, 400 dollars So is that going to be sort of repurposed and beefed up with this investment? Pakiwaha currently is a, is a half-hour show, I think, once a week. We're creating what is essentially a um, Māori morning report. At the moment, it's really an interview-based um, situation, but we're actually beefing it up with a, a few um, journalists as well, so they'll actually be able to go out and cover news. With the training, I mean, that's interesting because the biggest ticket item in this is their Tereto project, which is media organisations clubbing together, uh, 25 Māori and Pacifica cadets. And I mean, we do have journalism schools and there's internships at media companies. Is this uh, saying that basically that's failed or that's at least failed to bring in uh, Māori and Pacifica and, and other journalists? I think we can definitely say that there is an, uh, a huge need. At the moment, there is no institution in New Zealand that trains Māori journalists. 
and the training that we do have has been sort of funneled into the into three year degrees. The number of applications that we had from the industry shows that they see an absolute need to not only um, uh, bring more people into the journalism sector, but also to train them in very hands-on um, skills that they feel they need in the newsroom. We are having conversations with the journalism education sector to see, okay, so you know what's happening? Why is it that you are producing um, uh, graduates and yet the industry is still saying it's underserved? Māori journalism is completely um, at, at a crisis state. Collaboration seems to be something that's in the guidelines right from the start, uh, emphasised for uh, this fund. So I think you had a summit in early June, perhaps, where some of the media companies were told, look, your applications are not very collaborative. You know, that, that perhaps were you telling them that, you know, don't see this just as an opportunity to get your costs covered to do things individually as companies? We wanted to ensure that we could make that money work the hardest that it possibly could. And that just wasn't going to happen by duplication. I know that it caused a lot of um, grinding of teeth in the industry. Um, it certainly did when it happened in June, yes. Yeah, and I, there was a quite a lot of pushback. But at the very same time, there were a lot of conversations that happened that would have never happened in any other situation. Out of that will come some actually, you know, some really strong relationships. I'm particularly thinking about the regions. They're the areas that have been hardest hit by this journalism crisis. So it makes sense for us to be more collaborative. Yeah, we already have a local democracy reporting service, which is expanding. That's specifically for that, isn't it? Do you double up with that a little bit? Because you're still funding things that went on beforehand, like those local focus videos that go out on the NZME platform, you know, video journalism from regions and so on. That existed before that's being funded here too. No, we, I mean, we're very careful about duplication. So, for instance, local focus is, um, is a very broad kind of look at local news, whereas the local democracy reporter is very focused local government reporting. And we'll, we will be very clear about ensuring that duplication isn't happening. Well, as you'll be aware, there's been some political criticism of the fund even before it opened, just the idea of it. Um, People concerned, specifically opposition politicians, about the media coming onto the government payroll effectively. Judith Collins just this week was was voicing those concerns. Carl Dufresne, a former newspaper editor, wrote to his former paper to say, you know, organisations have to commit to a set of requirements that include, among other things, actively promoting the principles of Te Tiri Te Waitangi. And he says, in other words, a news outlet that seeks money from the fund is signing up to a politicised project whose rules are incompatible with free and independent journalism. I mean, is he actually right about that? I take offence at some of um, the criticism that, especially around Te Tiriti, I do not understand how... Um, encouraging and incentivising our media to understand our founding document and therefore provide um, better engagement with all New Zealanders is a bad thing. Well, and the, the way that the way that Judith Collins put it specifically, you know, the principles of the treaty. What's that got to do with the operation of a free and independent media? It should be up to them to decide what they cover, and they shouldn't have to have in the back of their minds whether it's consistent with the treaty or not. I think that was her objection. They're, they're confusing two things. One is how the media covers things, and the fund does not editorialise how they cover things, you know, or what they cover or what they say in their coverage. It does require that they understand Te Tiriti principles. 
So if you understand fertility principles and you want to be critical of those principles, then well and good. But actually many media organisations do not understand fertility and therefore um, the, the conversations that they are curating are, uh, run the risk of being biased, racist and not delivering to the fertility partner that is Māori or tangata whenua. Well, one specific objection that was made was to say, oh, look, if the treaty and how what it should uh, role it should have in our constitutional political arrangements is actually a bit of a topic at the moment uh, with, I guess, news around he pua pua and things like that. So if someone actually wanted to apply to the fund to make a program that covered those topics, would that be possible? Uh, or would that, would that be something regarded as a bit too contentious because it, it might be seen to, as potentially undermining uh, te We absolutely want to encourage conversation in this, in this sphere, but we want to ensure that that conversation is fair and that it is actually coming from an understanding of what tetility is actually about so that we're not just getting into a polarised debate where we, where we get into a debate where actually both sides of the story can be told. I don't see why that would be a bad thing. And, and for some projects, for example, there's one about uh, explaining the possible consequences of uh, the rupture of the Alpine Fault. And in that instance, I mean, the treaty wouldn't really come into that at all. Yes, it does. I mean, that's the thing. Tertility actually comes into everything. When we um, first looked at that proposal, we noted that there was no Māori content. So we went back to the um, proposers and, and, you know, what they've come back with was is fantastic. And, you know, the project is stronger because now they have some um, engagement with Naitahu. Naitahu have, absolutely have lots of experience of the earthquake situation and, and how it affects their communities. I think we've strengthened that proposal because now it has one element of it that will actually provide to Māori audiences and also provide a viewpoint that um, other audiences may not have seen before. It wasn't a requirement that that was onerous. And in fact, I think they would say themselves that that actually it's, it's a good thing. I'm not sure why in 2021 I need to explain to media it's important that Māori voices are seen and heard. And then at your June summit, the, there's um, material on the website showing a proposal from the Aotearoa uh, Media Collective about bringing cultural capacity and even this concept of partnership editors and that applications could apply to New Zealand on air for, um, for a partnership editor. Does that mean actually you could have an editor attached to you who would have knowledge of, of tikanga and te ao Māori and they would be part of the project? Um, no, it's actually much more fundamental than that. And what it's actually trying to do is to put partnership editors at the senior level of an organisation so that they can provide that guidance and that surety around things at a very uh, senior level. And therefore, it would flow down through things so that, you know, hopefully one day you wouldn't need to, you know, <laughs> have cultural advisors assigned to particular projects because from an organisational level, there is some sort of cultural safety sort of built into it. We're actually going to help facilitate that by using the Aotearoa Media Collective to come in and assist companies to look at their strengths and weaknesses and to see how they could create um, a partnership role. So the, um, the partnership editor roles will be run as a pilot. I'm not concerned that we are holding the media or making them jump through hoops they don't want to jump through. 
these are hoops that maybe they should have been jumping through a very long time ago. If we go back a bit, when the last time a Labour government tried to... um you know, intervene in, in public television, for example, the TVNZ Charter. TVNZ was given money to kind of compensate for them to run a bit more public service programming. And at the time, that money just kind of cross-subsidised the production. Um, could that be the case with some of these grants? I mean, if not every dollar was spent on that particular project, would that be a problem? So every time we look at a proposal, we absolutely look at, is this business as usual? Could you not be doing this currently? Why, why couldn't you just do this yourselves? Why do we need to fund it? Are you going to want to see receipts for spending of absolutely up to the, the dollar of the amount that you give for those specific projects, like how good is our public service? Or is it OK, you know, you're not bothered if it, if it goes to support the business a bit, they don't spend it all on that one project. Is, is that OK? Every proposal has um, incredible amount of contracting that sits around it. So they will all be required to show the um, public interest journalism logo, which is being designed as we speak, that will sit on it so that, that, that the public will be able to see wherever public interest journalism funding has gone, they'll be able to see it. We're also um, putting in an unprecedented level of tracking of the content. So each of those proposals has a contracted amount of content they need to produce and they will be um, checked on every you know, every quarter, and we will be monitoring. If they haven't produced the content they said they were going to be producing, then we will be looking at that, and we may not you know, continue to fund if, we, if the contract has been breached. But just finally, in the bigger picture, it's a three-year thing, this fund, but some media companies are going to become very dependent upon it, and, and no time frame beyond three years to, to give the media industry any certainty that you know this um, source of funding is going to continue into the future? So every time we fund something, we look at it and we go, you realise that in two years' time, you know, the money is gone from this fund. And I think, you know, there are some projects, um, like the training projects, for instance, which is, we know that that, that will go on um, post the fund to actually create a better media environment, so that's fantastic. One of the reasons that we're spending quite a lot of time and effort in tracking the results of this fund is so that hopefully by the end of it we will be able to demonstrate that this is what was produced, this was the outcome, this was the public good that came from it, and hopefully we'll find other ways or the government may even look to continue some of the funding because without it, you know, the situation remains dire for many media organisations. That's Raywin Rash, Head of Journalism at the Government Funding Agency New Zealand On Air, who oversees the $55 million Public Interest Journalism Fund. And you can hear more of what she had to say about that and a full list of the projects funded with the first $10 million from the fund. It's in the online version of the story on the RNZ website or the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed, available wherever you get your podcasts. Look, if this is in reference to uh, some discussion around uh, a methamphetamine program uh, that is currently being supported, that program uh, is based on a program that has been around since 2010, which the then national government was happy to support. I see this as politics. 
That was Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern had a stand-up press conference last Monday responding to a reporter asking if she was really comfortable about public money funding an anti-drug programme run in part by the mongrel mob. Her response was that it was politics rather than rehabilitation at the root of the question, but that was kind of self-evident. News reporters wouldn't be asking the Prime Minister about spending on a health or justice issue if it hadn't already become political and, in their eyes, newsworthy. The thing that made it both of those in the first place was a scoop that filled the front page of Hawke's Bay Today newspaper on Monday. It said that close to $3 million from funds collected from the Criminal Proceeds Recovery Act of 2009 were being used to fund a new marae-based rehabilitation initiative called Kahukura. Hawke's Bay Today's front page story on Monday began like this. Central Hawke's Bay Mayor Alex Walker says the funders of a drug rehabilitation program led by the mongrel mob must keep their eyes wide open. Well, the National Party certainly found it pretty eye-opening and had plenty to say about it pretty swiftly. National MP Mark Mitchell, for example, couldn't wait to bring it up when he was a guest on the Mike Hosking Breakfast on News Talk ZB. Mike, talking about the, the um, proper use of taxpayers' money, Stu, how and who signed off $2.75 million dollars to the Mungle Mob in Hawke's Bay to run a, um, a meth uh, rehabilitation program when, you know, the money's going straight out the back door to run the um, meth production uh, units all, all the way through the Hawke's Bay. <laughs> now, by this point, Mark Mitchell and his National Party colleagues knew that it was several ministers, including the Prime Minister, who'd given a green light to that funding. Branding the funding a sick joke, National MP Simeon Brown said he drafted a gang funding prohibition bill to ensure no public money would ever be handed to any gang. And the message for the media was pretty clear in his statement too. National is the party of law and order. We won't be sitting down and having cups of tea with gangs. Rather, we support our police to enforce the law and support organisations like the Salvation Army. Meanwhile, at Monday afternoon's post-Cabinet press conference, the Prime Minister pointed out that when the Law and Order Party was in power not so long ago, it gave a green light to similar rehab programmes. It is not new, uh, and it would be a shame to see uh, a, a political party who once supported addressing meth addiction and crime-related meth addiction from stepping away from that, as appears to now be the case. And as for Mark Mitchell's claim that the thick end of $3 million for Kahukura would be a big boost for mob-made meth in Hawke's Bay, Hawke's Bay Today's original story on Monday clearly said the Ministry of Health had made the application to the Proceeds of Crime Fund, which is administered by the Ministry of Justice, with decisions determined by a panel representing a range of government bodies. So in other words, the mob doesn't get the money. But as the media story became almost entirely party political, the devil was not in the detail about the delivery of effective rehabilitation. It was all about the noise and that sum of $2.75 million of public money. Now, there was another reason that this made so many headlines this past week, and that was because it came off the back of another controversy created last week by a mere $200 of taxpayers' money making its way to the mob. Why we, did we he do. give $200 we, we, of taxpayer money to the mongrel well, mob? Look, as I, as I was about, about to, to say, that what we're keen to do is to reach beyond the Beehive and Lambton Quay. The Human Rights Commission gave $200 in koha to a mob hui in Hamilton back in May. 
It was Newstalk ZB that revealed that koha the previous week, prompting National Simeon Brown and ACT's leader David Seymour to call for the Human Rights Commissioner's resignation. Māori Development Minister Willie Jackson had also met with the mongrel mob recently and he also copped flack from the opposition for doing so. And on Tuesday last week, News Talk ZB's Jason Walls confronted Willie Jackson in Parliament to find out if he'd handed over public money too. That's a stupid question, uh, and uh, I'm tired of those stupid uh, uh, types of questions. Uh, what we're talking about is carrying tikanga here, and so when you go anywhere, uh, you give koha uh, if you're invited. Later that day on News Talk ZB's Drive Show, political editor Barry Soper was unimpressed. Look, that was arrogance in the extreme. Um, basically, he's saying he's beyond being asked, uh, asked questions. And uh, the fact is we're entitled to know as taxpayers. And uh, it might be tikanga. Well, why didn't he explain in a better, more sensible way uh, what they do? But whether he likes it or not, he did give money to the mongrel mob. Do you reckon? Well... Clearly. And that same day on the talk station Magic Talk, Willie Jackson told the host Danny Watson there was misunderstanding among non-Māori about koha protocols and tikanga and Willie Jackson then went on to make this claim on Magic Talk about the media reporting of all of that. I might be getting a hard time on your network but on my on our Māori networks uh, I'm getting 100% support so uh, if you want to listen, tune into Māori TV or to, uh, to cut it on Channel One or the Iwi Māori Radio Network, one hundred percent support. Later on that day, the issue came up again on TBNZ's Te Karere, but only briefly. Now there, Willie Jackson told the host Scotty Morrison he was really hoha, annoyed that National and ACT were playing politics with this. The most important thing is tikanga, that is the answer to that, my friend, Willie Jackson said to Scotty Morrison, who just left the issue there. But in last weekend's interview with the Human Rights Commissioner on News Hub Nation, Tova O'Brien made this point. Can I just put to you something that RNZ journalist Mediana Johnson said to Willie Jackson this week? Why would you uphold tikanga for a group that don't uphold tikanga? Quote, they harm our people, they pump meth, they beat the women. So personally, are you comfortable giving them $200 of someone else's cash? RNZ's political reporter Mediana Johnson had indeed put that to Willie Jackson in Parliament because she knew there was concern about tikanga and the mana tied up with it that may not be appropriate for an organisation involved in crime and harm to Māori people and communities. Willie Jackson's response was, you're sounding as silly as some of the questions coming our way. Now, as a former boss at Radio Watea and also a former chair of Te Whakaruruho, the umbrella group representing Iwi radio stations, Willie Jackson knows plenty about Māori media. And there's nothing new about a minister resenting or dismissing questions put to them by reporters, whether they're really silly ones or not. But Willie Jackson's claim there that all Māori media and journalists agreed with him about that issue was not only overstated, it was also a bit heavy-handed in the light of the fact that as Māori Development Minister, he's driving a significant review right now of the Māori media. Tipuni Kōkiri, the Ministry of Māori Development, took almost two years to complete Te Ao Pāpaho Māori, Heara Ho, the Māori Media Sector Options Report, back in 2019. 
Now, that proposed funding fewer news programmes and newsrooms so better resource programmes could be seen and heard across Māori media. And Willie Jackson's predecessor, Nanaia Mahuta, endorsed that. But as her associate minister at the time, Willie Jackson, emphatically didn't. And he even said that the ministry needed to be reined in on that. Now, after Nanaia Mahuta's elevation last year, Willie Jackson is now in charge, and he's now charged with enhancing the Māori media sector alongside a new public media entity that the government is planning. Last June, Willie Jackson appointed a panel of seven Māori media experts, including Takarari Scotty Morrison, to provide him with independent expert advice to support recommendations that he will take to Cabinet later this year. And it would be surprising, even worrying, if they all agree with the Minister 100% about that. Later this week, the Olympics get underway in Tokyo. Although it won't be the kind of games we're used to because of all those COVID restrictions, there will be, doubtless, some unforgettable sporting moments at what will still be a major global media event. And so is the Euro 2020 football tournament held one year late across 11 European host countries, which were only finalised at the very last minute. Now, doing it this way was a major risk, and there was some transmission of COVID-19 among fans in the stands, and a few cases even among the squads of players. But all in all, the tournament's been widely hailed as a success and as a gamble that paid off. The final was settled in dramatic fashion last Monday at Wembley Stadium with perennial underachievers England pipped at the post, almost literally, in a tense penalty shootout. And as some of you will have seen in the news, some of the home fans didn't take defeat to Italy too well. A dangerous, hostile environment for fans attending the nation's biggest game in half a century. Um, guys sort of urinating in the street, defacing property, swearing, abusing people, glass bottles flying. Anticipating a backlash against conspicuously Italian shops and restaurants, London-based Italian comedian Sam Picone put out this plea on social media on behalf of his fellow Anglo-Italians before the final. Please, please do not damage Italian independent businesses. And in exchange, we will allow you to destroy the following restaurants. Bella Italia, Ask Italian, Spaghetti House, Zizi, Domino's. <laughs> Sorry, even just the word, it makes me, come si dice, indigestione. Papa John's, Pizza Hut, and any pizzeria that has even a trace of pineapple in the kitchen. I talked about that and more on Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday with Karen Hay on The Lately Show. That's on our page of the RNZ website, the RNZ app or in our podcast feed if you missed it. Just look for the title, Midweek Media Watch, Italy Takes Revenge for Pineapple on the Pizza. One of the other unforgettable scenes, though, at the Euro 2020 tournament came right at the start when Danish star Christian Eriksen collapsed and nearly died on the pitch in Copenhagen in front of home fans, including his own wife, and millions of people watching live on TV. The Guardian this week in the UK picked that as one of the tournament's top moments as his anguished teammates formed a protective ring to maintain privacy as heroic medical staff saved his life. But by contrast, this week, when controversial UFC fighter Conor McGregor suffered a grotesque leg injury in his latest big-money fight, the cameras and commentators went right inside the octagon to get as close as possible to it. 
when the lower leg of the trash-talking Irish showman snapped and crumpled after just one round, the multi-millionaire podcaster and UFC commentator Joe Rogan was on the scene in a flash, inviting his opponent, Dustin Poirier, to gloat. You landed some vicious ground and pound, and in the last seconds of the fight, in a crazy freak accident, he misses a punch and breaks his own ankle. He, uh, he fractured it on one of the checks at the beginning of the fight. Then it broke on a punch, yeah, for sure. When I pointed at him at the beginning of the fight, that's when I checked a good kick. I bet that's when it cracked. You felt it. I felt something, but I, I mean, he's kicking me hard, you know. And if that wasn't tacky enough for UFC viewers, Joe Rogan then sat down next to the stricken McGregor, who was lying prone on the canvas in agony, to get his reaction. Tell us what you felt. Tell us what you thought was going on. Just the thing had separated and we bled and landed on the wonky leg like Anderson Silva that time. Something similar to that, just getting mad out business. Shake! Now, to be fair, the adrenalised Conor McGregor seemed only too happy to respond and also to tell his opponent his wife had been in his DMs and he'd be taking her out later and other things. Not classy, but less deficient in dignity, arguably, than milking a painful and potentially career-threatening injury. Now, is this what fight fans, some of whom paid more than $70 to watch it on pay-per-view, really want? That's something Eric Sinton, the editor of MMA website Sherdog, pondered in a piece headlined The Grizzly Allure of Broken Bones. Part of the reason we watch the sport, he said, is to see the absolute limits of the human body, and this includes seeing it in its most vulnerable and shattered state. For us damaged souls with thick calluses, preventing us from realising what it is we're watching, it was a necessary shock to the system, he said. It should compel us to turn away for good, he added about McGregor's crumpled leg. Or, he added, we might just keep watching the slow motion replays in the hopes that we'll get desensitised to it in time for the next one. Well, the next outing for Media Watch will be at about 10.30 next Wednesday with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show. And then we're back again at the same time next weekend with more Media Watch here on RNZ National.